Are you struggling to understand the importance of purpose for your brand and how to use it to tell better stories that will help you stand out from the competition? Well, in this episode, I'm joined by Tom Geary and he explains how to do just that. Welcome to the Unified Brand Podcast, brought to you by Elements Brand Management, a weekly brand building and brand strategy podcast to help you unlock your brand's potential, stand out from the competition and create impact. Today, we're joined by Tom Geary, founder and creative director at School of Thought, a fresh and innovative creative agency delivering purposeful, groundbreaking work for challenges across nearly every industry. Great to have you on the Unified Brand Podcast, Tom. It'd be good to learn a little bit more about yourself, what you do, and School of Thought. Hey, it's great to be here, Chris. Thank you. I was just reflecting on the fact that you're giving the universities a run for the money where you're providing so much great content. It's like an instant MBA. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate that. You know, it's funny, about once a month, somebody walks in and asks, like, what classes are you offering? And we don't actually offer classes, and nor are we School of Rock, which is another, you know, frequent point of confusion. But uh, no, we started in 2009. My sense of timing is epic. And, you know, we are a creative agency. But over the years, we started doing work that was sort of more about uh, doing good or helping our clients do good, sort of purposeful campaigns and initiatives, things about equity and DNI and and clean energy and so forth. And, you know, there was kind of more spring in our step, we found, after those projects. And we just enjoyed them more. And, and so we kind of really leaned into that space. And so that's kind of the focus these days. But my background is, in general, as I'm a creative director, done all sorts of things for all sorts of clients over the years. So I really enjoy uh, talking about this stuff. So what is it about sort of challenger brands and brands that create an impact? What is it about those sort of draw you to them? Well, challenger brands are great because you always have an opportunity to sort of go after Goliath. And I think it's an easier position to be in if you have the scrappy upstart. And you don't have to be the scrappy upstart to come across like the scrappy upstart. We've had some enormous successes for marketers at big companies, Microsoft, Cisco, and so forth who were able to kind of forget that they worked for Microsoft and Cisco and just say, let's do something great. And next thing you know, we're getting millions or tens of millions of engagements. You don't have to be a little scrappy upstart to act like a little scrappy upstart. People appreciate the passion and the drive that I think is inherent in a challenger brand. So I think there's a lot to be said for that. I mean, in terms of purpose, we're in a tough time. Think about the pandemic. I just managed to get through COVID myself. And, you know, it's been a, just a, a terrible two or three years for everybody. I'm not, unfortunately, capable of going in and sort of helping the NHS or hospital here in the States directly. You know, my skill set is not such that I can do anything about it, but I can help with communications. I can help kind of make things a little teeny bit better whether it's a vaccine hesitancy campaign, helping people kind of overcome their concerns about vaccines or coming up with a campaign that is kind of about mental health, which is kind of, I think, the pandemic behind the pandemic. You know, how can we make people feel better? I mean, there are a lot of different things that people can do to kind of do their own part, whether or not you've got the skill set in healthcare. You know, sadly, I can't help it directly, but indirectly, there's a lot of good that we can all do if we kind of think about why we're getting out of bed in the morning and how can we kind of end the day having made a slight difference somehow directly or indirectly to make things better. 
I totally agree. I think um, the skill sets that you have, if you can utilize those to best impact society, I think that's a great thing to do, a noble thing to do, and something that makes you feel as though you are contributing. And I think, yeah, if more people could do that, that would be amazing. But also just kind of following on that, you know, I was talking to somebody who works at the Federal Reserve and he's like, you know, we've got all these programs and they're great, but we have a hard time communicating, you know, and it's a great idea isn't a great idea unless one can communicate it effectively. And there are all these programs and initiatives that kind of get lost on people. And unfortunately, when you get into these sort of narrow initiatives, people sort of tend to default to, okay, let's talk about this in a very straightforward, earnest way, because I'm passionate about supply side economics or whatever the wonky you know aspect is, but that's not gonna work. You know, you're an expert in that sort of thing, but it's not going, the communication isn't gonna be effective. So how can you come at it in a way where the communication will be effective, will be heard by the audience, and then you'll have a great opportunity to put you know this great program actually in place in a way that, that works for everybody. It's funny you should say that, because I think that the curse of knowledge for people is that barrier sometimes. And you sort of almost as a marketer, as a brand builder, you are a translator in some way between the two, the audience and the brand involved. And I think it's interesting. So how do you actually approach those campaigns? How do you approach the kind of the purposeful mindset with a client? Well, a lot of the time people come to us and they say, you know, I need a blank. And they're kind of very specific because they've got a line item and they're, you know, they've got 50 things on their plate. And they're like, you know, I, I need to acknowledge that I'm helping this, you know, coding academy. We're doing a sponsorship or something, and I think I need an ad. And so what the first thing we try and do is basically think about why are they coming to us? What is the larger point of their ask? Because a lot of the times we can come up with a better solution if we start there. So, you know, what are they really trying to accomplish? Is it really that they just have to get like, you know, we're happy to be sponsoring this thing, or are they really interested in the larger initiative? In this particular case, I'm thinking about, we had a client who was sponsoring a nonprofit in Seattle, and the nonprofit is about helping women mainly, but also LGBTQ folks uh, who are not encoding, it teaches them how to code. And, you know, if there's a woeful underrepresentation in programming and coding, of course, you know, everybody is white and male, 95% or something. And so this academy is trying to go the other direction. And we started hearing about this and we're like, you guys don't need to do an ad about this. You need to do a story about this. So we filmed a video, we went to Seattle, filmed a video, interviewed all sorts of students, found this one student who was actually living in Portland, commuting to Seattle, 350 miles, leaving her two-year-old with her husband so she could basically make a better life for herself, you know, switching from kind of being a part-time bartender, part-time project manager, kind of a gig worker to fulfilling a lifelong dream of being a coder. And so she's driving, you know, 300 miles every week. And it was this crazy story. And, you know, we only found out about it because we kind of decided to dig deeper. And there was an opportunity to show the story rather than tell it. And we ended up filming this thing and it made everyone cry and it was an amazing story and she ended up getting the job of her dreams. And so that's, I think that is why, that's an example of why I would suggest start with the problem rather than your solution, because by and large, your creative partner will have a better opportunity to kind of help you come to a better solution. And it, maybe there isn't a better solution, but there's no harm in trying. 
do you find as well that when when you work with the purpose side of things that it opens doors if that makes sense it kind of becomes something that once you understand that everything gets clear there's something that i've said a few times but i don't think you can people talk about thinking outside the box but it's hard to think outside the box if you haven't actually defined what the box is and i almost think sometimes that if you understand that purpose those doors get opened to different possibilities well one thing that's great is that if you're working with say the head of diversity and inclusion you know by and large these individuals are pretty passionate about this subject they're ahead of us you know, it could be that they're a person of color or somebody who's been underrepresented and have a lifetime of passion on this topic. And so we're just going to be, you know, so they're already ahead of us on this topic. And so we're just going to do our very best to keep up. So it's great when we can work with a, a partner who is ahead of us on topics, because frequently that isn't the case. You know, frequently, if you're talking about, you know, traditional marketing, sometimes you get somebody who is less passionate about storytelling, less. But when you're working with somebody who is passionate about solving inequities or social impact or, you know, is, has formed an employee resource group for this month, you know, Black uh, employees, it's a great place to start because there's inherent passion in the story and we just get to, we're kind of already in third gear use one of my infamous mixed metaphors if you're in that situation i totally agree with you that that, that passion that drives it how do you tease out those stories how do you find the stories the right ones the sort of the gems as it were that are in there to help communicate yeah it's a great question i mean everything we do it's about a 10 percent shot you know i come up with 10 headlines at least sometimes more to come up with a winner. We cast a wide net in terms of finding the stories and you know we'll come up with dozens of ideas to kind of figure out the very best one. I mean, I think it's what's good is if you kind of presume disinterest, that's one thing that we try to do. We sort of try to channel the audience, you know, nobody gets out of bed to look at ads. Uh, nobody wants to look at ads, but people like good stories. And so if everybody could kind of put on their skeptical at home hat you know, the person who's DVRing past everything to get back to the premiership games, then you'll be in a better place. And so we kind of bring that skepticism or that sort of jaded quality to the table so that we make sure that we end up with something that is really going to kind of be emotional and be accessible, something that people will want to pay attention to. How would you suggest that with the sort of companies or people that are listening, how can they define their own purpose, but also uncover that? and then start to tell that story? Well, it's a challenge, Chris. You know, it's like, I'm not totally up on Premier League standings these days, but I mean, tell me who's at the bottom of the list? Who's gonna get relegated soon? I'm an Arsenal fan and we're not doing too great. I think at the bottom of the list is, at the moment, I've got a funny feeling it might be Burnley, I think, something like that. Burnley or Norwich, one of those two. Okay, so let's say that we're coaching Norwich. There's been a tragic mistake and I'm coaching Norwich, you know, maybe the defense is just shy. And I have to be optimistic about our chances as a coach at Norwich. I have to, you know, the team around me, everybody, no one's going to come up and say, Tom, you know, we have absolutely no offense. Our strikers are terrible. So that's the problem with being brand side. You've kind of had this group. There is the danger of having this groupthink mentality where everybody is kind of influenced, especially in the tech world. Everyone's influenced by the the stock options are coming in. You know, it's everything is going to work out. Norwich will will prevail, our Norwich brand. 
So that's why it's good to have an outside perspective. As a creative agency, we're not going to come in believing that Norwich is, is headed for the Champions League. You know, we are going to basically look at things objectively. We're going to say not so sure about the offense and so forth. And, and think about also the competitive landscape. You know, how can we set your brand apart in an incredibly cluttered universe? And it's a challenge. Sometimes we do presentations, you know, and everything looks good in the conference room. Again, the, you're inside the sort of the bubble with the clients. I'm not concerned about how things look in the conference room. I'm concerned about how things look out in the real world. We get into presentations and some, you know, it's like a, a social media ad and, and somebody's, you know, looking past the, the thing and down to the fourth line of the caption copy. And I'm just like thinking to myself, I'm not concerned about the fourth line of the caption copy. I'm concerned about whether anyone's going to stop and look at this thing in the first place. So I think, you know, as much as possible, if one can kind of work to overcome. And, you know, I've been in-house. I've been in-house at Adobe. I was asked to work in-house at, at Apple and Salesforce, actually be the chief creative officer at Salesforce. I turned it down because I'm an idiot. But, you know, you're going to be, it's just inherent. I was the same writer at Adobe as I am outside, but I have the benefit of perspective. So I think if people can basically think about the danger or the challenge of being inside the bubble, of being, you know, of, of presuming that people are going to be excited about the next, the packaging you just came up with, you know, they're not really. So if you can be kind of the skeptical consumer, and if you can think about the real challenge of setting yourself apart in the universe, if you don't have a communication that is incredibly arresting, you're throwing away your money. It's crazy and distinctive. You know, I was talking to somebody the other day, every tech firm right now in the Silicon Valley is using a typeface called Open Sans. I mean, yeah. every single one. And I'm just like, what are they doing? You know, consumers have a hard enough time pigeonholing brands. You know, they're not even paying attention. But if they happen to give you their attention, you're then making this mistake of using the exact same typeface as everybody else in the Valley. You need to make use of every single tool to help position your brand distinctly in the mindset of the consumer. And so many brands are making those mistakes. So I would say, be the skeptic, avoid the group think, really think about the competitive landscape outside so that you can add distinction. And then finally, make sure your communications are arresting. Stop people in their tracks. If everybody on your team loves it, it's probably milk toast. And uh, we did an ad for a security company called Druva. You know, it's cloud-based security and it's really wonky and so forth. And I was struck by the fact that Druva is yet another made-up tech name, but it kind of had a, an interesting pedigree. I guess it's a, a Hindi word. And so I was kind of like, what does it mean? Anyway, we started thinking about it. And so we came up with this ad and it was like Druva, roughly, you know, speaking, it translates to saving your ass. And it was kind of bold, but it's also grounded in truth because it's a business security software solution. And everybody is concerned about cybersecurity these days, rightly. And so we thought, okay, why not put the benefit into this thing and also kind of weave it into connected to the fact that they had this kind of made up name that didn't seem to make sense, at least to those of us in the English speaking world. And uh, 
we ran into some billboards and, you know, next thing you know, this senior executive at Google is sending a photo to our clients saying, this is amazing. It stopped me in my tracks. Who stops to look at an ad? Who stops to take a photo of an ad and tweet it on? You know, that should be everybody's goal. You can't always accomplish it, but man, that's what we get out of bed to try and do. And that's what every marketer should try to do in my estimation, because life's short. Aim for more of those tweets. Aim for making a difference and really connecting with people emotionally. That's amazing. I really like the idea of that. And um, yeah, to actually stop someone in their tracks, take a photo, that's definitely got to be the goal. I'd like to double back in a minute onto positioning because I think there's some really interesting points you put there about positioning someone to be different. And one of my biggest bugbears is copycatting. I see people do that where they're sort of copying other people, like you said, in the market. But it'd be interesting to dive a bit more into your process around creating some of those campaigns. So do you start with a headline? Do you start with an image? Is it the concept? And then you find those things out. How do you sort of go about approaching those? Mm, that's a great question. Well, we do a lot of things and it depends on the scope. I mean, the first thing we do is kind of a competitive audit, right? What's the landscape? What's everybody doing in the space? You know, and, and I love your podcast about Dollar Shave Club. I mean, what a great example. How many trillion iterations of blades, you know, have we all seen? Like, you know, it's great. It's got four blades. It's got four and a quarter blades. It's got the, you know, whatever. And, and this guy comes in and he counter positions and does, you know, just amazing storytelling. So the first thing we do is an audit of the category. And then we start, you know, a lot of time we do primary research, talking to the audience, again, trying to kind of burst the, get past the Norwich coaching staff and talk to the fans. You know, what's really going on? What do they really think? What are their skepticisms about your offering, your product, your wares? What is their belief in general about the category? So back to the sort of Dollar Shave Club, you know, if everybody's got a perception that, man, these blades are really expensive. It's kind of price fixed and everybody's charging $15 for these blades. If that is a category view, then you have to exist within that framework. You have to think about that as table stakes. And so we think about, we, you know, we try to find all of these things. First off, it's kind of funny, you know, bankers have the worst credit. I could not come up with a name for the agency. We went through about 290 names I know because I have a list and 205 of them were terrible, just the worst. And, you know, finally we came up with School of Thought and it works and I like it, but it also fits us. You know, we funnily try to be a little more thoughtful about all these things. And so we get a lot of information and a lot of data points as much as we can, hard to overdo it. And then from there, we have the framework and we start to think, okay, is there an opportunity to counter position against those guys? Is there an opportunity to kind of lead with a purpose-driven effort? Are they a challenger brand? You know, what's their voice? How is their voice going to set themselves apart from the competition? So we just kind of start going down this path. And then we typically will present a range of ideas, three or four campaigns that kind of go along a continuum from being maybe where the client thought they should be to where we think the client should be, you know, and that's a challenge too, you know, of course, as I talked about, there are a lot of times the marketer has a lot more experience, a lot more passion, a lot more history in, in the category or in the subject matter. So we have to respect that, but we're bringing a fresh perspective to the table. And so we kind of have to strike that balance. So that's kind of how it goes. I mean, the great thing I will say is we're blessed to have worked with a lot of great clients and we almost always nail it on the first go round, which of course has jinxed me to a terrible fate with our next new client, but 
thus far, knock on wood, you know, it, it has worked uh, really well for us. Cool. Yeah. So on the back of that, what are some of the misconceptions that you see from people in the space and in the industry? What are some things that kind of hold people back from maybe taking that step? So you've sort of presented this new way forward for them. What are some of the things that hold them back from taking the step to that place? Well, I talked a little bit about people presuming interest, you know, sort of where if we're on the team, we're in, interested in this new version of the Schick Razor or whatever. So if one can presume disinterest, channel the skeptic, you know, that will help. Also, the importance of being arresting, of really, that's the mantra that we have, you know, if we're not stopping people in their tracks, we've kind of missed the mark collectively. So I think those are a couple of the things that I think about. There's just an opportunity. Unfortunately, so many people kind of do what was done before. You know, you were talking about the sort of the copycat thing or those guys just did that. We have to mirror them. And that unfortunately leads to just this morass of clutter and crap and sameness out there, which is terrible. And it's not that hard to go different. It really isn't. I mean, if you think about the relative risk, I mean, let's say that we're Volkswagen, you know, we want to come up with a new car model. What do you think that costs? You know, a billion euros? It's got to be some crazy number, you know, what, 10 years of development or whatever it is, retooling factories, design, everything. I mean, that is a risk, capital R. What kind of risk is it for a company to come out and, you know, stand for female empowerment? Is that a risk? No, not really. But, you know, it wasn't what they did before. And somebody gets nervous and they say, no, that actually happened to us. We got asked to do a campaign for Charles Schwab for the Golden Globes. And in the States, it's sort of changed this last year because the Golden Globes has made some pretty ridiculous sophomoric mistakes in terms of representation. But about seven years ago, Schwab comes to us and they say, okay, we have this spot this placement, commercial placement on the Golden Globes. It's going to go around the world. And, you know, what should we do? And so we dug into it. This is before Harvey Weinstein, before Me Too, before Fearless Girl. And like, you know, there's a massive problem in Hollywood with women getting treated poorly. All the actresses age out at, you know, the whopping age of 32 and, you know, get sidelined. Way too many white guys are in charge and so forth. Why don't you stand for female empowerment? Why don't you stand for creativity. It's a forum for creativity with Golden Globes. And so versus, you know, doing the thing that everybody else had done year over year over year, where you're talking about stock trading, you know, for five pounds or whatever it was, you know, the typical, the typical ad, the typical transaction in a commoditized space. And so we looked into it and we're like, okay, Reese Witherspoon at the time had been facing the same dilemma. And so she decided to become a producer. And so she just at that time had produced her first movie called Wild about this kind of recovering addict who hikes the Pacific Coast Trail. And, you know, it was a moderate success and that was leading to other opportunities. And we're like, why don't we partner with Reese and do a, a campaign about young filmmakers, like empowering young female filmmakers to tell their stories, have her do some like tutorials with a bunch of young girls and so forth and, you know, stand for female empowerment. And, you know, you do some good, you stand apart and really make the most of this global platform. And we pitched it and they're like, oh, that's very interesting. And they kind of mulled it over and then they ended up running the typical ad from last year about $5 stock transactions. And now if you look at it, and also interestingly, 
tied to their campaign line, own your tomorrow. And we're like, own your tomorrow. You guys could own female empowerment. So we campaign line we came up with was she owns it. Hashtag she owns it. So the point is, it is easy to do what you did last time. But, you know, 30 years from now, when you're retired, do you really want to look back at yourself and say, great, I did 15 versions of a $5 stock trade app? Or do you want to say, hey, I was the person who, before Fearless Girl, before Harvey Weinstein, stood for female empowerment with, you know, one of the leaders of the finance world. Everybody's got an opportunity to do some good. We're not talking about billions of dollars like retooling a car. That's a risk. That would make me nervous. But standing up for women and, you know, doing some good, making people smile, connecting emotionally, that shouldn't be a risk. So, you know, if people want to make a difference, there are opportunities out there. Every day, there's an opportunity to tell better stories in a way that will connect. Yeah, that's staggering. They didn't go with that. It's just firstly, what an amazing idea. What a great story. Worthwhile cause. It just, uh, even listening to you talking about it got me choked up. I've got two daughters and so it kind of got to me in that regard. And it's already, it, strangely, just hearing that story and Charles Schwab has kind of put them in a different light, even though they didn't go with it, strangely. And I think that's the power of storytelling and what actually can happen if you stand for something, if you have values that align with something. Yeah, that definitely is staggering. They didn't go with that. Well, it's a commoditized space, you know, talk about position. What's the difference between Schwab and Fidelity and Robinhood and E-Trade and all of these, you know, TD Waterhouse, all of these brokerages, they all offer the same ETFs. They all have the same technologies. They better have good sites and platforms. So if you're not thinking hard about differentiating yourself, you're missing the opportunity. I've heard about Robinhood before. I heard about him not long ago with regards to something that was sort of going on in the news. But what's the premise behind Robin Hood? Because obviously my name's surname's Outlaw and in the UK, Robin Hood's an outlaw of myth. So I've always had, when I was a kid, we went to see the place where he supposedly was in the myth and stuff like that. So Nottingham, Nottingham Forest. Is it Sherwood Forest? Sherwood Forest, yeah, Sherwood Forest, yeah. that's it. And yes, yeah, so we went there and went to the Oak and all this sort of stuff. But I just, I've always wondered with the premise of Robin Hood, what's behind it? Is it about that story of Robin Hood from the rich to the poor is that the well idea? it's a great it's a great notion and it's funny they haven't really been leaning into their name is good chris you're right you know it's like it's about at its face you would think it's about equity you know it's about giving opportunity for everyone and they kind of do that but they have done it in a ham-fisted way i would say they created the platform and yes, it's simple and accessible in the sense that it's, you know, the usability is great. I've got it right on my mobile. But what I would have done were I the CEO, which is another, you know, let's just presume another tragic recruiting mistake has been made. And I've gone from being a coach in football to the CEO of Robinhood. But, you know, I think I would have woven in the accessibility with a lot of education because they basically said, we're here, we're free, and then go for it. You can make lots of money in the options market and it's been great and it's been terrible i'm sure for people at the same time a lot of people have probably lost all of their savings as a result and that's actually been a real problem that's sort of been in the news and so what i would have done is the positioning is great their name is brilliant and they could and should stand for financial 
empowerment, you know, for everyone, because there is an enormous problem in our society with savings. You know, people don't save enough for retirement and so forth. And so they should lean into that, but do it in a way that's kind of responsible, where it's as much about education as it is about making a buck. So to me, it's been a missed opportunity for the brand. They, you know, they came up with a, an ad that was about, we're here for everyone. But to me, it's disingenuous. And that is always a mistake. You know, you really, one has to communicate from an authentic place. Otherwise, people will sniff it out. You know, that's just my opinion. I mean, the, the CEO of Robinhood's, you know, laughing on top of his or her pile of Bitcoin. But that's what I would have done if we'd had the opportunity. Kind of goes against the, the spirit of the idea, doesn't it? If he's sitting on the pile of Bitcoin, I mean, obviously to a point, but, you know, take from the rich to give to the poor and kind of that sort of spreading out of the wealth and side of things. Well, yeah, no, I mean, I'm being facetious and snarky because apparently it's facetious and snarky Thursday. But I mean, it's, you know, hey, everyone's entitled, you know, you start Dollar Shave Club and you get a check from Unilever. Good for him. And being a CEO of a financial company cannot be an easy thing. So if that person gets a hefty payout, so be it. But I think it's better when the brand is acting responsibly and, you know, doing the right thing. And, and it's tricky and dangerous. You, you know, you literally have lives at stake. People kill themselves after making these option trades. And, you know, there was a kid who thought he owed, he lost, he shorted you know, a stock and thought he lost $700,000 that he didn't have and owed it to them and he killed himself. And I would not want to be on the Robin Hood team ever when something like that goes down. And it was foreseeable. Yeah, no, that's not good. I think, like you said about the education side of things, that's vital really, especially in stuff like that, where there's a lot at stake. It's, yeah, it's almost a duty of care to a point. So in terms of positioning, we sort of mentioned it earlier on and you were talking about positioning and how to sort of position yourself in the competitive market away from the competitors. What are your tips on this? How do you go about doing that? And you also mentioned something about marketers as well, how they can differentiate. Yeah, I think it's just really important to understand the category and the other players in the space. You're never positioning against yourself. You're always positioning against other brands. And so what are the, what are the positions that they have Think about Zoom versus WebEx. We did a bunch of work for WebEx. And they cleverly, this guy, this kid from WebEx quit and comes out with a, a more nimble product. But the thing that was painful kind of as an observer was he positioned you know, Zoom as this nimble upstart that was better in every way. And Cisco didn't respond. They could have counterpositioned. But they just kind of took the shots forever. I think it's really important that people think about all sides of positioning. There will be brands that will position you in a certain light, and you can either sit there or you can think about it. And Cisco could have basically come across with a campaign that basically positioned them as the leader, as the trustworthy one, and been a little more nimble and quick on their own. Because you don't have to be the staid giant brand. You can be act like a startup as well. And we've had big successes with marketers at Cisco and Microsoft who forgot, who basically ignored the rules and ignored the bureaucracy and just said, we're gonna go for a win here and had enormous successes. 
we did something for Microsoft that was so successful. The CMO had an offsite with us and like 40 of their leaders in marketing and said, how did we accomplish this and how can we replicate that experience? And the answer was what I said. There was one marketer who basically said, I'm not going to ask permission. I'm going to beg forgiveness and we're going to pretend like we're a small brand for a change and see if we can go for it and have a success. And it was, you know, it's in Wikipedia now. So it was enormously successful. It's really interesting. So it's almost like smaller brand thinking for larger companies. So exactly right. And, you know, it takes guts for sure. We're working on a Cisco project where there was this guy on the WebEx team and he said, you know, it's Mobile World Congress. I don't have a trade show booth. It's this massive exposition in Barcelona, 27 times the size of an Ikea. And how can we stand out? What can we do? And so, you know, we thought about it and we had like four weeks to do this on the other side of the globe. I had hair before this project. It was very <laughs> stressful. And uh, he says, I don't care what we do, anything. Just please get me some presents. And so, you know, we came up with about 10 ideas and we thought about WebEx and, you know, it's about, at the time, it was about helping small businesses kind of have a leg up and, and this is before the pandemic and before web conferencing became ubiquitous. And so we said, okay, you know, this massive trade show, everyone's going to be running around exhausted. Also, here's another huge tip. Don't think about yourself. This is not about you. Dale Carnegie would say, it's not a great thing if I talk about myself for an hour. So make it about your audience. And so that's what we did. We ran around with personal assistance. WebEx to the rescue was the hashtag that we used. And we basically rescued people all over this massive trade show, giving them, you know, charges for their mobile, comfortable insoles for their shoes, having walked, you know, 19 miles or whatever it was, Advil, because the night before had been a little too boisterous. So we're running around, it's all tied to social media, and it became this thing. Everybody was like, oh my God, there are WebEx people are running around saving everyone. It's great. How great is that? And so it had this presence. But along the way, it was funny, Chris, we had other people, you know, our clients, colleagues were just kind of like, what is he doing? This is crazy town. And it was this kind of safe concern about the politics or so forth, you know? And at the end of the day, it was... It was probably one of the most successful trade show activations that anybody did at this massive trade show. Huge success, two or three million engagements, I think, in two weeks. And it was all because this one person decided to kind of break the rules and not really give a damn and, and see if we could have a win. And so that is something I would just suggest, you know, it's not that big a risk. Think about your stock portfolio. You've got like 50% in safe things and ETFs, that's fine. And, you know, 30% in bonds, okay. Put 10% in some flyers, you know, in some things that might take off or might not. You know, not all of them will work, but some will. And when you get that hit, it will pay off tenfold. That's how people should approach their marketing, in my estimation. Find to be safe with a lot of your portfolio. What's the harm in going for it with some small percentage of your investment? Because it will pay off. Actually, Microsoft, I'm borrowing from the Microsoft playbook. Microsoft used to spend 3% of their marketing budget on total flyers. And it was great. It was so impressive that a big brand like that would just try, you know, they used to call them experimental marketing initiatives. 
And I think I did two or three of them for them and they were enormously successful. So, you know, that's another bit of advice. I'm quite a visual thinker. And when you were talking about flyers, I had this visualization of someone lighting a load of fireworks and one of them flying up and then exploding. And I think that to me, when you're talking then sounds, if you don't try anything like that, you never know if you're going to get that explosion, that kind of thing that takes off. Exactly right. And obviously you want to work with somebody who's responsible. Most creative agencies, at least the good ones, are going to try to do things responsibly. It's not going to be you know, a crazy initiative that lands everybody in jail or whatever. We will do it in the context of, you know, back to the Microsoft example, we're going to have to do something that is within the brand realm for Microsoft, right? And so, but it could be edgy relative to Microsoft. It could be pushing things a little bit for Microsoft as we did with Miss Dewey. You know, it was crazy and unbranded and ended up getting 60 million hits. You know, all organically, you know, and they're not all that way. I mean, there are lots and lots of examples of Crispin Porter is an agency here in the States that for a while was probably the best shop in the U.S. We actually competed against them for that Schwab project. Neither of us won. Schwab ended up just sticking with some commercial that they used before for $5 trades. But Crispin has had a long history of doing crazy stunts that were wildly successful. Whopper, Freaka, Burger King, the big fast food company, you know, they had this thing where they pretended that Whoppers had been taken off the menu and they filmed reactions and people were just like jaw drop. And it was this thing and it was became huge and it was called Whopper Freaka. Now, I have no doubt that for every Whopper Freakout that Crispin has come up with, they have come up with a lot of great ideas. You know, they had two or three deaths. But who cares? The Whopper freakout was worth hundreds of millions of dollars to them in terms of exposure and brand equity. So try more things. You're not building a new car. It's not that big a risk. So if you were to give, say, three tips to the listeners on how they could transform their brand or change it so it's more purposeful, what would be your three top tips or three things to focus on initially to help with that? Oh, wow. Just three. Transform the brand. Well, I would say be bold. You don't want to look back on your career and tell stories about having done $5 stock ads. So being bold, there's just no harm in relative terms going for it. You know, be arresting. Make sure that whatever you're coming up with makes somebody in the room nervous. You should make sure that you are stopping people in your tracks. And think about it from a, just an ROI standpoint. You know, everybody is so passionate about data and analytics these days. That's okay. But... I can do an ad that gets X number of people to look at it, or I can get an ad that I guarantee will get 2X number of people to look at it. Why would you do the former? It doesn't cost any more for me to do the second ad. I can guarantee twice as many eyeballs and twice as many impressions with that ad. So push yourself to that mark and push your creative partners for that mark. And then, you know, be distinctive. There's just so much shameness out there, you know, my idea of a great campaign is one where I can cover up the logo and still know who came up with it. Aim for that because you want to give people an opportunity to really position your brand in a mind that is full of clutter. And so make it simple. That's interesting. Someone said to me, shout out to Nick Everset. He mentioned to me, he'd heard from somebody else about a really good way to explain branding. 
if you imagined Apple bringing out a hotel, you could imagine what the Apple hotel would be and how it would look and how it would feel in that experience. And if you can think, imagine a brand in another category that they're not part of, but still understand what that would be, that's a really good indicator of a, of a really solid brand. That's a great example. I think one of the things that's challenging is people are so overwhelmed. I had an old boss who used to sort of describe the mind as if it's a kind of an old school mail sorting system, you know, with like this big wooden matrix where, you know, a cabinet where people are kind of filing one's letters and so forth. In the mind, I think people just don't have much space for each of the respective brands. So it's got to be simple. Each of those slots is their space for a brand, but it's not a big slot. It's not a big space. If you're going to get something on that card filed into that slot, it better be simple and distinctive and memorable because if it goes on too much, it won't stick. It won't uh, sort itself out. Yeah, definitely. We've gone through some examples today, but is there anyone that stands out? It could be a client. It could be uh, something you've seen that really nails that. That's tough. There's so many brands. Sometimes I talk about when I look at student portfolios or I've been a judge at numerous number of, of award shows, I kind of think about brands as having a degree of difficulty, like almost like diving. If you're making trainers, it's got a low degree of difficulty, right? You're, you've got LeBron James on your team and so forth to push it if you're a big brand like Nike's or Adidas. But anyway, to me, what's impressive is where you've got a brand that has kind of fallen on hard times and has kind of revitalized themselves because they had some upstart marketing person who basically said, hey, we're behind. What the hell have we got to lose, you know? And so something you were talking about, Dollar Shave Club, Chris. And so I think about like the old spices of the world, you know, and the stuff they did with Terry Crew. And it just was like pretty amazing that to me, a brand that was just dead in the water. And it's like easy to go, oh, Old Spice, they're kicking ass. You know, they've given Dollar Shave Club a run for the money. But no, they weren't. They were they were as dead a brand as any I can think of. You know, they were. The corner had come in, you know, time of death and all sorts of things. And somebody turned it around and it was super impressive doing some unexpected things. And so I think that's a great, that's one example that sort of comes to mind. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. High degree of difficulty, outlook bleak, return unlikely, and they pulled it off. So good for them. Definitely. It's been really good talking to you today. It's been awesome. I could do it all day. It's been, yeah, it's been really good. So thank you. No, real. uh, It's been my pleasure, Chris. Thank you so much. Where could people find out a little bit more about yourself, School of Thought, and anything else that you're promoting at the moment? Apparently, this thing called the internet is getting big. I hadn't, I wasn't too aware of it. So schoolofthought.com is our site. Because I know the guy who started the firm, I was able to secure Tom at School of Thought. And then we're also on Instagram at, uh, at School of Thought. Brilliant. I'll put, I'll put the Not School of Rock. No. Not an accredited university. But uh, other than that, we're happy to help people. I'll put the links in the show notes. And uh, yeah, anything else I'll put in there to do with LinkedIn profiles and stuff like that. That'd be great. So um, yeah, it's been great having you on. And thanks very much. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Chris. We've just put together a weekly brand tip video series, which is designed to help you to unlock your brand's potential and stand out from the competition. And if you're interested, if you just go to elementsbrandmanagement, or one word, .co.uk forward slash weekly hyphen brand hyphen tips, sign up 
and you'll be delivered a three to five minute video a week straight to your inbox. I'll put a link in the show notes if you're interested. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to receive more, you can subscribe in all the usual places. We're talking iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher. Please, if you get a chance, rate and review. It helps the podcast to kind of get a bit more visibility and allows us to keep on producing these podcasts. Have a great week. Catch up soon. Keep those brands unified.